Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our visions of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session. When I wanted to start a podcast, I had no clue what I was doing. And I made so many mistakes along the way that I just wish I knew about earlier. I wish someone told me these things earlier. And so what I've done is I have prepared a completely free resource for everybody. It's called Podcast University. It solves for all of the unknown variables when it comes to starting your show or even taking your show to the next level. I talk about in a very, very concise manner. It's very quick to read what microphones to use, what headphones to use, what software you should use to record your remote interviews, and the microphones that you should use to record in-person interviews as well what software you should use to edit your show, what branding assets you need to take advantage of, where to host your podcast, like how do you get it on Apple and Spotify and everywhere else. I've got it all there for you on Podcast University. Again, completely free, and you can go to jordanparis.com slash P-U to get your show off the ground, take it to the next level, avoid all of the stress of figuring it out on your own. Podcasting has absolutely changed my life, and I know it will do the same for you. Now, one last thing before we get into it today, make sure that you are subscribed to the show, Growth Mindset University, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Everything we do here is to help you, to help you learn so that you can do all that you were created to do so that you can maximize your potential and who you are. As cliche as that sounds, we have interviews with New York Times bestselling authors and really just the most successful people in the world. Every single week, two times a week, we have those interviews. So we don't want you to miss it. Make sure you go do that. And now without further ado, please enjoy the show. guest today is Jim Kunstler. Jim is the author of at least 20 books. Jim, tell me real quick, how many books? It's so many. To you know, I sort of lost count. I think it's like 21, 22 or something. I I don't, I haven't counted them in a while. Sorry. <laughs> Jeez. We're, we're, I want to get into the writing process a little bit later. That's a lot. Uh, he's been a regular contributor to the New York Times Sunday Magazine and op-ed page. Where he's Not for on- a long time. Not for a long time. No. How long? <laughs> well, since they, you know, since they became wokesters, I haven't uh, been writing for them. Gotcha. Where, where, he, well, you re- you wrote on in- environmental and economic issues. Uh, Mr. Kunstler graduated from State University of New York, worked as a reporter and feature writer for a number of newspapers, and finally as a staff writer for Rolling Stone magazine. In 1975, he dropped out to write books on a full-time basis 
And he has no formal training in architecture or related design fields, even though he writes a lot about that. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. He's lectured at Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Princeton, Dartmouth, uh, Cornell, MIT, RPI, the University of Virginia, so many other colleges. Jim, welcome to the show. Jordan, it's a pleasure to be with you. Gosh, where to start? I guess we'll we'll start first with like uh, 21 or some, something books, right? A lot of books. I mean, well, how much time does it take you to write a book? Oh, around an hour and a half, you know. No, <laughs> no, you know, it takes, uh, it's like loading cinder blocks on a truck. It's a long, steady process. Uh, you just got to sort of persevere and stay with it. It took me two or three years to write some of my books and, uh, you know, a year for some others. But uh, so that's, a, that's about it. What are like the, the phases that you go through? Like what takes two to three years? What takes a year? Well, it's really just kind of, um, you know, battling through the composition of the prose. The, the writing process is a self-informing process, by which I mean that uh, the first sentence tells you what the second sentence is going to be, and the first paragraph tells you what the second paragraph will be, and so on, and that's how it proceeds. It is an emergent process. It's self-organizing, and... Um, the the writer really serves him or herself best by going with the flow of that emergent process and allowing it to emerge. And, you know, there are uh, an awful lot of um, ways that, that writers uh, trip themselves up trying to, you know, uh, uh, outline and, and mm. uh, anticipate what it is they're going to say but you really discover what you're going to say and how you're going to say it in the process of doing it. So, you know, that's pretty much it. You know, the, I think the basic idea is you got to show up every morning or every afternoon, whatever your writing period is, and just get her done. Uh, you know, and as Kurt Vonnegut observed about 10 or 15 years ago when he was still with us, um, um, he said that nobody can be intelligent for more than five hours a day. <laughs> meaning well you know like you just you burn out well you know you can there's only so much you can do it's uh, you know if you find yourself spending 12 14 18 hours a day at the keyboard struggling uh you know you may be working against yourself so uh the the other thing about the way i proceed is that i, I tend to lead a pretty stable and and uh well-organized uh routine kind of life routine existence where, you know, um, it's, it's not that easy to, to show up and get the work done because it requires you to focus and get into, uh, what, what they call a flow state of, yes. of, you know, creative composition. I don't want to be too pretentious about it, but, um, no, no, it's, it's a real thing, but, uh, you know, I think that if you can do it for four or five hours a day, you're probably going to get somewhere. So, and, and those four to five hours, more or less, or at least two to three of those hours, they, they got to be in blocks, right, to get into that flow state. You can't write a book 30 minutes at a time. Like, can we abolish that? Is that, can we, like, that's not a thing, right? Well, uh, yeah, as a general proposition, I'd say you're right. You got to stay with it, you know, because you're you're getting deep into concentration and deep, especially when you're rearranging words 
on a screen or on a page. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a very concentrated task. And the, the computer has changed that a lot. You know, I wrote my first four or five books on typewriters. That's wow. how far back I go, you know. At least it wasn't on a clay tablet, but it was on a typewriter. And the process of writing on a computer is really completely different. When you're writing on a typewriter, you really got to, uh, um, uh, you've got to march forward. You, you know, you, you got to cut your losses. You can't keep on rearranging stuff on a physical page because, you know, in the old days, there was this uh, product called Whiteout. And it was this stuff that came in a little jar that you painted over the typewritten page uh, and allowed you to type over the type typewriting. And, um, you know, you, there's only so much of that you can do on a page before the page becomes incoherent. But with a computer, of course, you just delete and, you know, it's all magical and it all disappears and it reforms automatically. And so the tendency is it kind of encourages you to keep on going back and polishing up the paragraphs and sentences that you've already written. And that um, inclination can get you into trouble. I know an awful lot of writers who just go over and over and over and over the stuff they've already got on the page, and they really have a hard time moving forward. So, you know, you got to have a kind of uh, idea in your, uh, a sense in your head that uh, you can only mess with this stuff so much at this go around. But you got to keep going. You got to keep the momentum going. You know, when you're writing fiction or when I'm writing fiction, when someone's writing fiction, I think the main task uh, is uh, that you've got to keep the velocity of the of the piece going, though the velocity of the narrative and the storytelling. And uh, that requires you to um, move ahead as with as much dispatch as you can in the story yourself. And then, you know, worry about fixing it later on. When you finish a chapter, like, do you go back and do a, 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 a quick proof real quick? Or do you do you wait till like the end of the book to kind of come back? And no, I mess with it everything. as I go along. I mess with uh -huh. it quite a bit. But, you know, I have a sense of, lim of limits of, you know, how much time I'm going to spend doing that. Okay. And, uh. Uh, you know, I just don't carry it to an extreme. And my, my procedure really is, you know, I'll open a file when I start working and I'll go back over the stuff I wrote yesterday. Uh, but I won't go that far back or, or, you know, I won't go much beyond that. And I'll mess with that a little bit more. And that will allow me to just sort of get into a state that, of, of uh, engagement that will permit permit me to start composing new sentences. Uh, so the the state of engagement, I I totally relate to that. I've like been thinking about that subconsciously when when I write. Like it helps me to just kind of reread my recent stuff, and it like just it kind of it, it aids in getting me back into the same flow that I was in. I, I'm in yeah. agreement with you there. And you know, not everybody's uh, personality is disposed to working that way. Some people, obviously everybody's different, you know, and, and some people have more kind of obsessive qualities than others. And, um, I, you know, I feel fortunate that I've developed my particular working uh, method because it has allowed me to crank out a lot of books. And, uh, uh, I mean, it's hard enough being a professional writer with, without being able, being able to produce that product, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, I mean, one, once you produce the book, that's hard enough. I, I get a lot of letters from wannabe writers yeah, uh, who, you know, ask me if I can help them get published or help them figure out how to write a book. And, you know, I have to give them the unfortunate information that um, it's probably harder and takes more work to get the book published than it does to write the book. You know, it can be like yeah. a, a multi-year ordeal and it's gotten harder because publishing has, has become such a, a kind of troubled business in the, in a way similar to the music business, although, you know, not as bad yet as the music business, which has almost completely collapsed. At least I the feel, old model of it has. Oh yeah, for certain. It, they've essentially made, I mean, with music, at least they've essentially made now music free, so to say. Yeah, or but really I mean, you pay cheap. $10 a month. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I pay $5 a month for Apple music because yeah. I'm technically, I'm still a student. <laughs> yeah. And I pay <laughs> so you know, seven it. bucks a month for Pandora. Or, you know, 10 bucks for Spotify or something like that. But yeah. it ends up, of course, coming out of the artist's uh, royalties. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they make less money. I, know, I happen to know a lot of musicians, and, and, and I play a lot of music myself. And um, it's very hard for them to make a buck in, in any way. I mean, it's just really, there are almost, there are fewer even live performance venues, and that's just about all that's left because, Nobody signs up with a record label anymore. You know, this is not 1971. So all the wannabe Joni Mitchells out there and Bob Dylan's, you know, they're they're up the creek now. Yeah. Um, but with writing, you know, there still is a kind of a um, uh, an infrastructure for publishing books, but it's pretty troubled and there's not a whole mo a lot of money for book advances anymore. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really a tough racket and there are no, you know, there are no magazines or, okay, there are magazines, but very few magazines that actually pay anything and fewer and fewer magazines, uh, of the general, you know, the general kind and the ones that are still around are kind of in trouble. So that was, that used to be the way that a writer could kind of, you know, fill in the blanks of, of his income between books. And uh, in the old days, you know, in, in let's say 1999, when I was still writing for the New York Times Magazine, you could make 3,000 bucks for a month's work putting uh, an article together for the Sunday Magazine. But, uh, you know, those days are pretty much gone. Yeah, they, they don't pay anyone anymore. No. Yeah, I mean, you used to, you know, there, there was a kind of an, an industry standard among the quality magazines, you know, like the New York Times Sunday Magazine uh, and others like it, you know, like a dollar a word. Those days are way, are way gone. So, uh, you know, you're lucky if you can make 500 bucks for doing uh, three weeks of work now. And that's a ridiculous amount of money to get paid, you know. For sure. You do better I, being a junior high school janitor. <laughs> I feel like uh, as far as getting a, uh, you know, a publisher for your book, I mean, unless you're Mark Manson, I mean, it's hard to really get the, the advance, a, a big advance. And then to even get a publisher, I feel like you need an inside man. Is that? Oh, yeah, well, I don't know. Um, th there is a lot of that. There's a lot of back scratching. Um, you know, it's become a kind of incestuous world, uh, but particularly in the world of whatever remains of literature, you know, people writing novels. I mean, that that world has almost collapsed. But um, uh, in the nonfiction world, uh, only the celebrity authors really do well. I'm, I'm pretty well known, but I'm not a celebrity author. 
and also I'm, you know, I'm old. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of getting shoved out of the, uh, uh, you know, shoved out of the arena, shall we say, just by, <laughs> you know, people get sick of you, especially, especially your agent and your editors. So, uh, um, I got, have you, had the, have you had the same people for a really long time? The not really. I've been, I've been around the block more than anybody I know. I, you know, I, I just got sold down the river by one publisher after another when I was younger. And uh, just about every misfortune that can happen to an author happened to me. You know, I, I've had editors who have gotten fired in the middle of the publication period, which means that uh, uh, the next person who comes along who is assigned to take charge of your book doesn't really care about it. I've had authors, uh, uh, you know, develop problems like being alcoholics. I went on, one editor of mine fell down the steps of the New York City subway while my book was in production. I've had publishers go out of business. Uh, that happened to me with Dial Press in 1985. Dial Press was an, was an imprint that is a subsidiary of Doubleday. And uh, Doubleday dissolved Dial Press um, about two months before my book came out. Jeez. So that that was you know, and th that was the period when they were supposed to market it and publicize it. So well, that, well, what are you left to do? I don't know. You know what you're left <laughs> to do is try to go through the motions with the 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 guy who is assigned to you to you know to to be the next replacement editor. But he didn't give a damn about the book. So you know, anyway, that all happened for for about seven books from about 2002 on. I was with a company called Grove Atlantic, which was a merger between uh, the Atlantic Monthly Press and Grove Grove Press, which uh, Grove Press was a great old uh, kind of renegade publisher that published people like Henry Miller, I think, and you know, a lot of the, the bohemians of the 50s and 60s. And um, I published seven books with them, and um, including a four-novel cycle that went under the, the rubric of world made by hand. It was a uh, set of novels about the post-economic collapse future. And after they were done, uh, they turned around and said, well, we don't want you writing any more fiction. Don't write any more fiction. And I, I kind of didn't like that directive. And um, so I've, you know, I've got a new publisher now called Ben Bella Books. They're kind of a new kid on the block, uh, kind of a new model for publishing. You know, They're doing my next book, which is titled Now What? Uh, it's a uh, nonfiction book. I hope the title is self-explanatory. It's kind of, you know, what's happening next on the political economic scene. Uh, and it involves a lot of the topics I've been writing about since the long emergency book came out in 2005. But right. anyway, I, you know, the point is, you know, I, I've had every disaster that can occur happen to me. So, uh, you know, I've had to land on my feet many times. In fact, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to hog the interview, but. Um, <laughs> no, this is your stage. This is your stage, well, Jim. That's what, I, that's what I was here for. This is a matter of interest. <laughs> the, when I, when I uh, wrote The Long Emergency in the early 2000s, my agent didn't want to sell it. He thought it was too oh. depressing. And so I ended up having to sell it myself. And um, I sold it to Grove Atlantic. And. Um, it ended up being my best-selling book. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a ridiculously capricious and unpredictable scene out there. And so anyway, the point I was trying to make earlier was I get these calls from the wannabe writers, you know, these emails, and, 
And I have to tell them that, um, that perseverance actually counts for more than talent. It's a, it's a sad message to get across, but it's true. I mean, you can be, I, and I've known a lot of really, really good writers who just couldn't hang in there. You know, they couldn't suck up the disappointment and the rejection and the, you know, the mistreatment from the publishers and the, you know, not to mention the penury of not making any money. And they dropped out, you know, they, you know, and their talent just sort of, uh, you know, was never seen by a readership. And it's very unfortunate. So perseverance means everything. You have to commit to seeing it through. Yeah. You have to commit to the long game instead of like, you know, wanting it published yesterday. And it's hard and like because, you know, being... you know, as we as we just said about five minutes ago, it's hard enough to, to commit yourself to the, the sheer act of of showing up to write the darn thing every day. It's very hard. Sometimes I procrastinate. Like I, the best days, the best writing days are when I like I wake up at 7 a.m. and I'm writing by, I'm, I'm reading and then I'm writing by 8 a.m. Wow, and that's, that's real good. I love that. Because love that. You know, I think a good writer has to read too. Yeah. But the, the worst writing days are when I like procrastinate until 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. And it's like, and I'm, and I'm thinking about it all day. Like, Ugh, I got to do this. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That's terrible self-punishment. <laughs> and, you know, there isn't a better uh, device for, for procrastination than the computer. You know, I mean, you, you can go anywhere in the world or the imagined world or is it several other alternative universes, you know, to, uh, to uh, uh, divert yourself from the job at hand. In the old days, you know, when I was sitting there with a typewriter, there were only two other things you could do. You could either pick up a book that was near, you know, close at hand, or you could light a cigarette. <laughs> right, yeah. which was a way of taking like a five-minute vacation from whatever you were doing, and, and and also, you know, it actually it had the additional effect of uh, the nicotine actually stimulating your brain because it is it, a stimulant after all. It, it is. It, it actually there's some like biohackers. You know, you ever heard of those biohackers that actually use that actually use those like small doses of nicotine, actually like pure nicotine, like a nicotine gum, and it actually stimulates the brain in a very oh, yeah. good way. Although, of course, still very addictive, you know. Yeah, I'm not doing, you know, I stopped smoking like 35, 40 years ago. Uh -huh. But, uh, I, you know, it was like my third or fourth book when I stopped smoking. And that that itself was an ordeal. Uh, I made it a point to stop smoking while I was writing a book because my smoking habits were so entwined with my writing habits that the only way to give it up was to keep on writing and not smoke. So, but I managed to do it. But now that the Internet has come along, you know, and you're sitting there at your desktop and, you know, you're, you know, you're, you may be struggling to focus on a passage in your book that's hard to write for one reason or another. Either you're not sure you know what you're talking about or you've got some highly emotional scene going in a work of fiction or, you know, and I wrote, I write both of these things. So I've had experience with both of them, but, you know, it's just not that easy. And so, you know, you, uh, you know, you go to the news aggregator site to see what's happening, or you go to the stock market uh, uh, to see what, uh, you know, what, what the stocks are doing. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I do that. I do that all the time when, uh, you know, where it, it gets hard and I'll just, it's so natural and I don't even think about it. And I'll click on to 
whatever social channel and start replying to like comments and messages. And yeah. it's like, Oh darn it. And then I'm out of flow. So like, how do you, um, how, how do you, I mean, cause I heard this quote from a very famous writer and I'm, I, I don't remember the writer and I don't remember the exact quote, but like nothing good has ever been written on a computer with internet connection. So I hear of authors. That's not like, true. Well, <laughs> right. Well, I think <clears throat> I, it, it's probably, it's probably not true. It may be true for him. But, yeah, but it, it can be very it can be very distracting. Like, how do you keep from uh, you know staying focused on the task at hand and not checking email or what have you? Fortitude, fortitude. Yeah, I mean, there's there isn't more to add to that. That's I mean, you just, okay. you just gotta you know uh, keep your your ass pinned to the seat of the chair, you know, and and your brain clear. Right. Now, writing uh, fiction just sounds really difficult to me. I just wouldn't even know. It's easier know. than nonfiction. Really? No, it's simple. It's simple. I don't understand. I'll tell you exactly why. Okay. Because uh, uh, you don't have to be correct when you write fiction. You just have to be plausible. That's true. All you got to do is be believable. All you have to do is construct a world or a scene or a relationship or a situation that is believable but it doesn't have to be correct. I mean, writing nonfiction, you actually have to pay attention to the truth, you know, you yeah. have to, uh, and to reality. And th that's not so easy. I find myself going all the time to Google when I like type something up and I, just to make sure that it's absolutely correct. Things that you were like 95% sure about in real life. It, but like when you're, but when you're writing it, it's like, Oh, I have to be 100% sure. Well, I you're quite it. right. Yeah. That's exactly what you should do. So, like, if we're constructing a scene here, mm -hmm. and a story in a novel, a non or, or, or a fiction book, uh, like, what are the elements of a good story? Um, okay, I'm going to lay out maybe in in more detail than you want exactly yes. what writing fiction is about. I would love you, this. You want to hear that? Yeah, I would love this. Love this. Right. this is this is an adventure that I plan on taking at some point in my uh, in my career just as like just for fun you know because writing's fun yeah it is fun and I really enjoy composition in fact I finished writing my twice a week uh, blog my Monday blog I do it Mondays and Fridays about five minutes before you know we got on this conference call and uh, you know that in itself is an interesting discipline because I have to get up at six o'clock in the morning twice a week and hammer it out. And and part of the discipline, uh, you know, which is in a way, it's a kind of a game that you play with yourself, is to uh, be under that deadline pressure of getting it out before ten o'clock in the morning, right? So th that's kind of a you you, know, you set that deadline. Yeah, I do, and I do it. You know, and I kind of amaze myself, uh, you know, twice a week just by being able to do it. I but you know it's become a discipline and it's really like you know if i if i uh went out to the tennis court with uh, a basket full of balls and served 100 serves and practiced every week you know after a while i'd get pretty good and and so i consider it a really useful discipline anyway fiction here's the deal fiction is really comprised of two elements the uh the first one is what we call uh exposition um, and the other one is called dramatic scenes and the whole, um, secret of it, uh, is how you combine the narrative, uh, or the exposition 
with the dramatic scenes and to know the difference and know what the job of each of those things is. And people, uh, novices at fiction are often very confused about that. that. I'd say that's the biggest point of confusion. Be, the exposition has three or four jobs, and that's all. To introduce characters, to set the scene and tell you where you are and where things are taking place, um, to comment on action that has happened before, and to set up uh, the reader for action that is going to happen uh, somewhere in the future, either directly ahead or, or further ahead. And that, that's all that the exposition is supposed to do. And the dramatic scenes are supposed to actually be the vehicle for the velocity of the story. And if you understand the distinction between those two things and the roles of those two devices, you can write fiction. And But what happens is um, uh, an awful lot of novice writers and even experienced writers who just aren't any good at it uh, are confused about that. And they, they try to uh, have the narrative uh, exposition uh, do the job of the drama. And so it, what it really comes down to is they're telling you all kinds of stuff rather than showing you stuff, you know, so it, it ends up being non-dramatic. So if you're if you're clear about what the role of exposition is, one of the things that tells you is that um, less is more. And if you find yourself just, you know, telling and telling and telling and setting up and setting up and setting up and not actually running the scenes, then your fiction is probably not going to work. I, I think that the you know, the art of the cinema has actually helped me and probably other people understand this uh as clearly as as we do because uh be, you know the, you really can't do you can't really pile on the exposition in a movie and so i have you know most of my career i i've actually thought of my my novels as a set of instructions for a reader to run a movie in their own head yes and in order to do, you know, there's kind of reminds me <clears throat> of what my favorite, <clears throat> of what my favorite professor said in college. I was a theater student, so I was often on stage acting. And uh, uh, this professor, Dave Hamilton, used to sit out in the darkness of the uh, of the audience, you know, you know watching us uh, rehearse on stage. And he would yell up at the stage, quit the acting and get on with the play. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens when you are over-reliant on, on exposition and not paying enough attention to uh, dramatic scenes. I hope that wasn't too much. No, absolutely. I think this is all very helpful. Now, what's going to be even more helpful, if someone wants to, like, and, and I, know you're, uh, I, I know you're not too keen on like, you know, I, I know you just say like, you got to have the discipline to do it. But if someone wants to write their book, like there's so many people that believe they have a book in them. I forget the statistic, but I was looking at it. Like, I, th I think it was something, it was from the New York times. Uh, and I wrote about it a long, long time ago. Uh, it was like 82% or so of people uh, of Americans believe that they have book in them. So like if someone wants to write a book, uh, what's, what would you like, how can they learn more about how to write a book? 
and uh, and, and get that done. Well, I, I actually, I think we've covered that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if there's any more. You just got to do it. Yeah, you, you know? just got to do it. You just got to do okay. it. In fact, I, I would say that what you're suggesting, that there are authorities that people can consult to make them better writers or prompt them to get on with a job. You know, that in itself is a, is a terrible distraction. In fact, it's it's terrible to the degree that it actually sends people running to the graduate schools to be in writer's workshops, you know, uh, something I've avoided my whole life. And I can't imagine anything more depressing or, or yeah. discouraging. It's just such a total waste of time. And not to mention the fact that these writer's workshops, like the Iowa Writer's Workshops uh, Workshop, you know, churns out uh, all these writers that the world has not asked for and probably doesn't need. You know, there's just too many goddamn writers out there or people who want to be writers. And uh, we've lived in this uh, expansive economy that has allowed so many people to bethink themselves artists, right? But the world probably doesn't need that many artists, including literary artists. So the competition is just horrendous. And, and of course, these graduates of the writer's workshop programs end up just sort of cluttering up the scene and cluttering up the, uh, the literary agents' lives and the publishers' lives, and there are too many books coming out. And uh, the publisher's re, uh, behavior around that is that instead of really paying attention to, uh, uh, to the marketing of uh, books that are worth publishing, they're just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what will stick. And I'm actually kind of concerned about uh, whether the book itself is going to continue to be a valued artifact in our culture. I'm not really sure anymore. Um, uh, I don't think that the internet is a permanent installation of the human condition either. And I know that that may surprise or shock a lot of people, but uh, you know, the internet depends on uh, an electric grid that is absolutely reliable. And I'm not too uh, uh, sanguine that that's going to be the case in 5, 10, 20, or 30 years. Um, uh, you know, I kind of think that we're heading into an economic situation that is going to kind of make us go medieval. It's going to be pretty difficult. And I'm, I'm just not sure that the electric system uh, here and around the world is going to continue to be as robust as it has been for a lot of reasons. But the main one being uh, uh, the energy issue. We don't have to get into that. But mm -hmm. but whether the book you know can be or will remain uh, uh, a, a cultural artifact, I think is a big question. I mean, it really didn't come along in a big way until the 18th century. It's only been with us you know, in the way that we know it for about uh, 300 years. I mean, of course, you know, there were books like Pilgrim's Progress and the Bible and, and uh, uh, you know, a few others before that. But as, a, as an industry that, you know, churned out a lot of product for a middle class really didn't start until, you know, the, the 18th century, the 1700s, you know, and all of a sudden you get characters like, you know, uh, Lawrence Stern and Henry Fielding uh, coming along. And, and that uh, is kind of the invention of the modern novel. And um, 
you know, the nonfiction book actually comes along later, you know, as, um, uh, or at least in a big way, uh, as a kind of an evolution uh, of the essay, you know, it's the, the long form of the essay. So, you know, whether uh, there's going to be a publishing industry in 20 years or not, I, you know, I mean, nobody imagined that the music industry would vanish overnight. You know, when I was growing up and just becoming an adult in 1973, uh, I would have been astonished to hear that, uh, you know, there would be no way for the Joni Mitchells of the future to have a career. But here we are, you know, here we are. Yeah, I really wonder what the implications of that are going to be on that industry over like the next 20 years. It's going to be very interesting to see because, uh, you know, the incentive to get in there is not very high. So, uh, you know, the last thing I want to talk about real quick is, you know, how come you're not afraid to write about things that you don't have formal training and education on? And, and how well, can someone else uh, be able to do that? I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, what my people call chutzpah. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I had a lot of experience functioning as a journalist, starting from, you know, being a newspaper reporter and when I was 22 years old and, and on from there. And uh, that, in a way, is like getting a graduate education in various things. You learn a lot about how the world works by being a newspaper reporter. You know, you learn everything from, you know, uh, what an insurance scam is to how the police operate to what politicians do behind closed doors, you, you know, a whole, the, the whole range of how the adult world works. And uh, that prepares you to be uh, a, perhaps less intimidated by things you don't know about. So um, I was writing a lot about uh, the built environment. I had written, I had published eight novels when uh, I started out writing novels. You know, when I dropped out of journalism uh, in the 70s, it was a very deliberate act. I had gotten about as far as I thought I was going to go. I had gotten to Rolling Stone magazine, um, and I wasn't too happy at that job. I, I actually didn't like it very much. It was a whole lot less fun than working for a newspaper. Um, and I decided to drop out and write books because at the time the programming for a young person with literary aspirations was to write novels. That was the thing you were supposed to do. So I did. So I wrote eight of them. You know, I moved to upstate New York, got a bunch of shitty jobs, wrote novels, uh, published eight of them. And then I had an opportunity to write a nonfiction book. It kind of grew out of this series of of stories I did for the New York Times Magazine, and they rejected one of them. And my agent turned that into a book proposal, and he sold it to Simon & Schuster. And uh, that, that was a book that ended up being uh, called The Geography of Nowhere. It was about the fiasco of suburbia, and really about the fiasco of the general uh, living arrangement, the physical living arrangement in America, and the depressing environments that we live in and you know what a fiasco they were it was a lot of fun to write but it was a you know it took me three or four years and it was quite a job of uh, a voyage of exploration into things that i didn't know that much about and 
But, you know, by the time it was over, I knew a whole lot about it. And I wrote, you know, two more books about that subject. And that got me into writing about um, larger subjects, including, you know, the the global energy predicament. When I was writing The Geography of Nowhere and Home from Nowhere uh, and, and my book about cities, the city in mind, it became obvious that if we had any problem with our energy supply in this country, uh, we were going to, uh, our living arrangement was going to fail. We had kind of built ourselves uh, a, a, um, an armature for life that, that had very poor prospects for continuing. Uh, and that was apart from its general shortcomings as just a place to live. So uh, that put me onto the whole energy question, and the long emergency was an outgrowth of that. And I didn't know much about the oil industry either, and I didn't know much about, you know, I didn't know much about financial markets and uh, uh, macroeconomics. But, you know, I was really interested in it, and so I just wrote about them. And uh, there you have it. Yeah, one thing led to another. Probably yeah. did the did the research too. And uh, James, uh, you know, oh gosh, I just called you James. Why did I call you James? Uh, yeah, that's Jim. all right. It's <laughs> my given name. You can call me James. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can call me Jim. Jim. Jim, this has been a this has been a great conversation. Uh, you know, as, as someone who uh, I, I hate to label myself a writer because I'm not, I'm just not as professional as you are, and I do other things. But as someone who is young and that writes, I've enjoyed this conversation. And I know people who want to get a book out there, which is 80% of people are going to enjoy this conversation as well. Jim, thank you so much for spending some time with sure, me today. It's been a pleasure. It was, uh, I, I, didn't think, I, I didn't quite expect we'd be talking about these things, but it was fun. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, there are a couple of ways that you can give back. The first is, of course, to leave an honest rating and review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can also take a screenshot of this and share it out on your Instagram story and tag me at J underscore Paris underscore and tag our guest as well. And we will absolutely give you some love. And then, of course, if you want to start your own podcast, a podcast like this or any other podcast that you envision, you can go to jordanparis.com slash PU to get free access to Podcast University. All right. I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give. <laughs>